Hello and welcome to Views from the Market, Mid-Market Private Equity and M&A in Canada. My name is Mario Negro. I'm a partner in the M&A Private Equity Group at Steichman Elliott. For today's special guest, I'd like to welcome Dan Howard. Dan is the Managing Director of Aon's M&A and Transaction Solutions Group, and his practice focuses a great deal on rep and warranty insurance. Dan, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me. Dan, I thought we'd start first by just uh, talking a little bit about yourself and about Aon, about what you do at Aon. Perfect. Uh, so as Mario mentioned, I'm a managing director in our M&A and transaction solutions group. And really what that is, is we've got to focus on rep and warranty insurance, but also the, the other prongs of our group, which is contingent and litigation insurance and tax insurance. And I've been at Aon now for uh, almost three years. And prior to being at Aon, I actually had the pleasure of sitting beside Mario at, at Steichman Elliott for many years, where I, I worked in the corporate and MAA group for, I think, eight plus years uh, from articling through to being a senior associate. Dan, you got out alive. You you sound like a happy man not being at the law firm anymore. <laughs> well, I, I, I miss I miss the espresso, Mario, from, from your machine and, you know, having you beside. But uh, other than that, things are good. Dan, obviously, Aon is a leader in this uh, marketplace. Uh, it's been very active for years. And in particular, uh, as you said, on the different variants of the rep and warranty insurance and the, the tax and indemnity insurance. Um, the marketplace is hot. There's so much going on. This product has, has really grown exponentially in Canada over the last few years. I wonder if we could start by just talking a little bit about the phenomena of rep and warranty insurance and what it's meant for the marketplace and, and frankly, why has why it become so hot a uh, product? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the biggest uptick in, in the usage of rep and warranty insurance, we've always kind of viewed the Canadian market. People would say it's sort of been about five years behind the U.S., and that's never intended to be in terms of you know, what people are purchasing or the quality of the market. It's just been in terms of adoption. And in the past few years, we are seeing rep and warranty insurance being used on more and more deals. Um, I think part of that has just been increased understanding from practitioners like yourself who've been using it for quite a long time. And now you're seeing more and more practitioners, both on the buy and sell side, being aware of the availability of rep insurance and pushing for its use on transactions. And we're also seeing, you know, repeat users from the, from the buyers themselves. So, you know, traditionally it's been a private equity firm driven product where private equity you know, firms were using it on almost all of their acquisitions and expecting to use it in all of their dispositions. But now we're also getting corporate buyers who are using it for the first time and then being repeat users as they find they really like uh, having it as a tool in their M&A toolkit. Can I ask you, and I know that in my practice, as you pointed out, we've used it generically uh, for private equity firms primarily who are doing deals on the buy side, but I know we're starting to see more and more people even use it on the sell side. What is the breakdown, Dan? Like, what was it heavily more towards the buy side or, or, you know, in terms of the product between buy and sell, like what are the advantages for the different elements of it? Yeah, so I think in terms of the, the policies being placed, they're you know, overwhelmingly over 99% of them are what we would call a buy side policy, meaning the rep warranty policy is the named insured is the buyer or a buyer entity, and they are making a claim against the insurers for a breach of the seller's reps. Sometimes the, the sellers may be the one initiating that process and saying they expect it. 
in a sale, you know, in the sales context as they either start an auction process or get exclusive with a buyer and say, you know, your recourse is going to be to the rep and warranty policy, not to an indemnity or escrow for us. And that's really been, you know, I think what people kind of think of it as being a seller friendly product, because at its core, it means the seller is not putting money into an indemnity or an escrow fund, and it's allowing them to leave with more money at the time of closing and, you know, take more money off the table. But for a lot of reasons, we think it's a very buyer friendly product. And there's a lot of reasons the buyers like it, you know, they're getting access to what should be a stronger package of reps, because there should be less negotiation from the sellers on the rep package because they have less at stake. And as long as it's not creating an execution or closing risk, they should be willing to give more fulsome reps. And the buyer is also getting the benefit of things like, you know, an ability to bring a claim for multiplied damages, which they wouldn't have directly against the seller. And also, you know, if you've got the seller rolling over or management rolling over and continuing the operation of the business, you don't suffer some of the relationship concerns of bringing a claim against a seller or management who's in the continued operation of the business. And, you know, I think I can say that in the time that I was at Sykeman, I saw one indemnity claim you know, actually brought and proceeding to the point of litigation against a seller uh, who had you know, breached their reps and it was getting to something approaching fraud. Whereas we see claims very frequently on the rep and warranty policies, you know, about 20% of all the policies, 20 to 25% of all the policies we place have some form of claim. So it's a lot easier to bring a claim against an insurance company who's, you know, put up the capital specifically for that reason versus bringing the claim against a seller who might not be there or management who's continuing to run the company. And it should allow for recovery in a lot of instances where, if you just had a direct indemnity package between the buyer and the seller, you weren't going to have that that ability to actually recoup some of the losses from a breach of the reps. And I mean, people always say that uh, when it comes to this product, then that the the tension is: will they pay? Will the insurance companies deliver? And you know, and we've now had you know a number of years of the product, and I wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, cl- people are making claims. What has been the claims history like? Like. What do you say to the criticism of people who say, ah, you know, they don't deliver or they, you know, it's too hard to recover? I mean, what's been your experience in terms of Aon when it comes to people making claims and and getting recovered? Yeah, claims is really one of the big focuses for our group. You know, we're uh, different than a lot of the other brokers in the market and that we have a dedicated claims handling team with three former litigators and a few others in the support staff who all they do on a daily basis is bring claims to the insurers and their claims department and try and negotiate settlement for these claims. So since 2013, which is when we kind of got a little better about tracking our numbers, you know, I think we've probably placed over 3000 policies in North America since the, that 2013 year. And we've had over 600 claims uh, on those policies. And we've actually, you know, been able to get payment of over $400 million above the retention from the insurers. So, you know, that's a very meaningful number. And that's only going to continue to climb as we get, you know, into having more and more policies pledged in each successive year. And we're also seeing from the insurers, they're well aware that in order for this product to continue to survive and continue to be utilized, they need to pay claims. You know, they, they brought in a lot of premium premium numbers and they are, I'd say, you know, focused on paying claims when they should and when there's valid breach and, and valid calculations on loss because they want to make sure that, you know, their buyers and users of the product are having a good experience and, you know, 
possibly inclined to place their next policy with them as well. So it's something where, you know, I think we've been really focused on making sure people are getting value out of the product and the value is not just, you know, the peace of mind of allocating this risk and, and getting the deal done. It is also on the back end if you do have a claim and, and we're very focused on that. Dan, there's been a couple of uh, uh, really interesting trends in the use of rapid warranty insurance in Canada, and, and it almost seems like it's evolving daily. And, and I want to ask your thoughts on where you think some of this stuff is going. For example, one of the things I'm noticing is, you know, traditionally rapid warranty insurance was used for larger deals, but in Canada now it's starting to be used uh, across the board, even for smaller deals. So even on deals we have a 10 or 15 or $20 million purchase price, we're seeing rep and warranty insurance become a, a part of the conversation or something to be considered to get a deal done. Wanted to get your sense on uh, you know what you're seeing in terms of the use of the product in Canada at the lower and middle market uh, for, for lower and middle market deals. Yeah, I think, you know, as you mentioned, the, the market had traditionally been looking at sort of higher enterprise value and purchase price deals to the point where I think even when I started about three years ago, you know, people were saying kind of 50 million EV or above was what, what they thought of as the cutoff. You know, we are seeing a lot more deals done at the 20, 25, and sometimes even as you mentioned, below $20 million enterprise value. And, you know, the reason why those weren't covered before at times, I think was the insurers had some concern over the work that was being done on diligence for those deals. And sometimes the diligence, you know, doesn't quite match up on a smaller deal in terms of what the insurers expect to see for, the work product that they get to rely on as part of their underwriting process. The other piece too, is that the insurers do have minimum premium numbers that at times can make, you know, ensuring a smaller deal less economical because you, you hit a sort of kind of cost floor at times sitting somewhere in the 200,000 to $250,000 range, depending on how, what size limit the insurers are willing to put up for a minimum number. And, you know, that that $200,000 cost as an all-in cost can be a bit tougher to absorb, say, into a $10 million deal. But, but you know, d- despite the cost uh, and sort of hitting those cost floor, those sort of cost floors where we can't get below, I, I do think there still is a place for rep and warranty insurance on a lot of those smaller deals because it will sometimes get them done when they'd otherwise might die. You know, if there's an instance of, you know, non-operating shareholders who are being asked to put money into an escrow, you know, they don't know and they don't have the, the ability to really give those reps and they're, they're then being asked to also put, leave some of their money behind, which doesn't seem, you know, fair to them often and, and doesn't really work in a transaction. So rep and warranty insurance in a situation like that can, can solve the issue and get a deal done where it otherwise might die. Uh, and, you know, we see that happen pretty frequently where you've got a large shareholder base or you've got, you know, shares being passed to you know, subsequent heirs and, and estates where somebody just can't give the rep and can't tie the money up. So it makes sense to utilize rep and warranty insurance to get something done that would otherwise falter. Um, I think one concern we saw at the end of last year, especially, was there was a, an issue at the insurers with a lack of bandwidth. You know, primarily human capital because they didn't have enough people to underwrite all of the deals that were they were seeing, and there was you know such a hot M and A market, particularly in the U S. We saw a lot of small deals stop getting quoted because if the insurers got ten quotes in or ten submissions in to quote on, and one of them is a five million dollar limit and the rest are you know twenty and twenty five, 
they're going to quote the bigger deals that they like a bit more because there's a chance for them to get more premium. So, you know, at the end of last year, we definitely did see quotes start to dry up on the smaller deals. And we've had a discussion with the insurers about one, the Canadian market is different. The, the mid market starts lower. There are, you know, as a percentage of deals that we're seeing in Canada, more of them are that sort of, you know, I'll call it 25 to $100 million enterprise value. So the insurers need to you know, make sure they're still allocating resources to quote those in Canada, because if they don't, you know, they're losing out on potential deals, they're losing out on potential clients, and it leaves a bad taste in someone's mouth if they come to us looking for rep and warranty insurance. And the response is, yeah, the insurers, you know, did, didn't get out of bed to quote this because they didn't like the lack of premium. And, and I think they understand that. And, and there is going to be a focus from them going forward to make sure the Canadian smaller deals are you know, better serviced and there's going to be multiple quotes because the insurers know that that's where a lot of the market is currently. And you bring up uh, another point in terms of the the increase in the products use in, in Canada then. And I know, you know, you've been good for our clients in that it, we're starting to see sellers who basically, you know, demand it, like pretty much as part of their processes, say, buyer, I expect you to have it. Frankly, they're even coming to you sometimes and kind of giving them the options and you as the broker kind of go out ahead of time and, and basically quote it and say, look, buyer, here's what we, you know, here's what we got. Uh, you know, we've already done the work for you. Make sure you, you put this into your, into your LOI, into your process uh, letter. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that too, is are you seeing more of that too, where, where sellers literally do the work for the buyer and come to the table already with almost like a package deal uh, in a process? Yeah, we're actually, I would say we're actually seeing that a little bit less just because of how ubiquitous it's become. Um, Got it. you know, the, Got it. the, the sellers, I think, are putting it in process letters and messaging an expectation that the reps policy might be sole recourse for a buyer coming in. And, and there's an expectation that that you're going to procure one. And if you don't, you know, we put our information out there so that a buyer who doesn't have a broker or a buyer who doesn't have, you know, maybe a broker who's competent with rest and warranties insurance, which there's a lot of, you know, then comes to us and says, you know, here, help us get quotes on this so that we can have an attractive bid going back to the sellers. Um, the insurer is also kind of same bandwidth issues that we saw at the end of last year. They were, you know, triaging and focusing on what they could quote. And one of the things that they stopped quoting was, what we call that seller flip where we're soliciting quotes on behalf of the seller that, you know, then a buyer might utilize. And part of the reason too, that I think we, we shied away from doing it as much is when you're out soliciting quotes on behalf of the seller, you know, it's early stages. There's probably not a purchase agreement yet. And, you know, the insurers want to wait until they see a quote from a buyer and they may have a relationship with a specific buyer. That means they're more likely to quote it, you know, for a buyer, despite the fact that it may be a smaller deal than they are, you know, for a seller very on in the process. So I think there are strategic reasons and there are times we, we still would do that. But I do think there's a shift away from doing that just because everyone's now got a bit more familiarity and we, we know when quotes are going to be available or when it's a, an industry that might be a little tougher and it might be, a, you know, less quotes available and it'll be a little tougher to get a, a you know, more quotes with more competition but we can also message that on the front end and let people know. So there's no gap in expectations over what they're going to receive and the ultimate availability of rep and warranty insurance. Got it. I had a couple of more different trends I'm seeing that I wanted to get your thoughts on. And one was the walkaway deal. 
you know, we're seeing more and more. And I've getting clients who on the sell side are pushing more and more for buyers to get rep and warranty insurance uh, that basically becomes the sole source of recovery for any claims against the seller. And I'm curious if you're seeing that become more dominant. I know it kind of reflects a bit of the U.S. experience, but are you seeing that come to Canada? Because I know I'm starting to see it. I wanted to get what you're seeing from a Canadian experience when we call I call the walkaway deal. I know there's no science to that, but that's the that's the idea that you just basically only rely on the insurance other than for fraud, and you can't go after the seller for anything else. Yeah, and what you call the walkaway deal, we call no seller indemnity, which you know for our our distinction just means that the seller is not bearing any portion of the retention under the rep and warranty yeah, policy. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there may be still a specific indemnity over and above for specific issues or for you know say fundamentals over the limit in the policy, but you know that that's how we make the distinction. And you're right, it, it's very much uh, you know becoming increasingly increasingly utilized. Last year, we saw across North America, 44% of the deals that we did were no seller indemnity. Um, and that's up from being, you know, high 30% the year prior, and, you know, only being 20 something percent in as recently as 2019. So we, we've really seen these no seller indemnity deals increase, you know, quite rapidly. Part of that, I think, has been the market where, as you said, sellers are becoming aware of the, its availability um, and are pushing for it. And in a hot market and in an auction context, you know, a buyer doesn't want to be left out just because they're trying to, you know, get a the seller to put, you know, a, a relatively small amount into into escrow to cover half the retention. And they're just seeing, well, we might as well do this to be competitive. But the other reason I think we're seeing it so much is it's the same aggregate retention number. So it really is just that usually half a percent of the enterprise value that the seller might be putting up. And the actual cost difference in the premium has really narrowed on the insurer side. You know, they used to price in a bigger premium when the seller didn't have any skin in the game for the purposes of the policy, because they got concerned that, you know, they might be more likely to have a breach, that there might be, you know, a bit of a moral hazard concern on the insurer side. But they've now seen so many of these deals and the claims data is not bearing out any meaningful difference on a deal where the seller doesn't bear a portion of the retention. So that's narrowed the premium gap from the insurers. So there's really you know, uh, no reason from a, a pricing perspective not to you know, consider that as a buyer, especially if you think it's going to be what gets you over the hump and, and you need to do it compete, to compete with other potential bidders. One of the other things we've noticed, I think you touched on, it, uh, Dan, is this, uh, I mean, the cost of the product has gone up. Uh, and I know part of that is the demand, in fairness to the rep and warranty insurance providers. I mean, it's uh, like anything, demand and supply. Uh, where, where is the cost of this product? Where do you think the cost of this product is going to go as we go forward? As, as it's kind of leveled off now, do we I know there was some increases in the last year to getting a policy put in place? Uh, what's your sense on uh, the demand supply curve for this product and where the pricing will go for it? Yeah, you know, I think at the end of last year, we had some clients come in placing policies. And if they hadn't placed a policy in the past two years, they were at times shocked about how much the premium had increased. You know, I think relative to other insurance markets and, you know, general trends on inflation and, you know, other cost of service, it wasn't actually as, as much as you might think. You know, we, we were seeing premiums last year kind of you know, starting to sit in the sort of five to six percent range, especially at the end of the end of the year when there was such a you know crunch and constraint on the bandwidth of the insurers, we've already started to see that level level out and you know start to drop again this year. 
as you know, I, I think we see that happen every year at the end of the year in, you know, December and, and November, because people are running out of capacity. They, they've hit their target numbers for some insurers and, and they run out of people to staff the deals. Start of this year, we have seen the numbers drop down back to, I'd say, you know, more, you know, early 2021 numbers. We're probably not going to get back down to what we saw as the lowest pricing of the market back in, you know, 2019, summer of 2019, where we were seeing sub 3% premiums. But, you know, now we're kind of sitting, you know, four to 5% edging towards lower in the 4%. Maybe we'll start to drop back a bit into the threes, but, you know, we're, I think we've now got such, there's such market data at the insurers that they know what they're seeing on claims. They know what they're paying out over the course of now, you know, the life of a lot of policies because we've gone through six year terms and that they've got a better sense on, you know, where they can be pricing and what they can price comfortably without being too close to the edge on one big claim throwing off their book. Now we're kind of already hinting on uh, the, the next question I want to ask you, ask all our guests uh, about uh, the crystal ball question with the future holds. I mean, this product is evolving so quickly. It's incredible uh, when I think about the last six to 12 months and how much has happened when it comes to rep and warranty insurance. But if I can ask you the crystal ball question, where do you see this product going? Where, where do you see the future of this product? What's your sense of the trends for this product in the in the future? I, I think the trend here is, is going to be one of increased utilization and and i think really for canada there's still a bit of greenfield in, in a way that there isn't in the u.s you know the u.s is such a private equity firm dominated buyers market and we're, we're seeing utilization from the private equity buyers on you know almost every deal that they're doing there's not a lot of deals that are in scope that we think is not are not utilizing record warranty insurance in the states Whereas in Canada, there still are you know, some pockets of practitioners who don't really know about it, whether to think to use it on the buy or ask for it on the sell side. And there's also a bit more corporate buyers up here who may have not had their first experience utilizing it and are, are getting a taste because they're participating in auction processes against northbound PE buyers who are coming in and using it as a tool to help them win a deal and, and help them give some added comfort to the sellers, even when they weren't thinking about asking for it. So, you know, I, I think there is still room to grow in Canada in terms of the number of deals that are in scope that aren't using it. I think some of that is at the lower end of the market as well, where the insurers haven't had as much focus on, but you know, are aware that they need to become more competitive and find a way to get those deals in scope and done. And then, you know, outside, I think of just increased utilization, I think we're going to start to see more of an uptick, you know, outside the rep and warranty into some of the other areas that I mentioned we do, like, you know, the tax insurance is going to be a big area of growth. And that's another one where people just aren't aware of its availability and whether it's transaction specific and you've got, uh, you know, a chance to place a policy that solves what could be a deal killing issue or you're doing this outside the context of a transaction and you want to crystallize tax treatment on something, you know, that's another place where we expect buyers and, and the practitioners at the law firms and the accounting firms and adv other advisors just to become more aware and, and start telling clients of the availability and, and we're going to have more deals come in that way as well. Dan, it's been uh, uh, great to have you here and give us uh, some insight on the latest trends to wrap and warranty insurance. It's an exciting space. I know it's uh, like for me, it's it's incredible to see how dynamic it is. And uh, I really appreciate you joining us today, telling us a little bit about where the market is at and the trends when it comes to wrap and warranty insurance. 
And so thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.